Hey, before I jump in, uh, I just want to remind you we're in the middle-ish of our 21 days of prayer and fasting as a church. So if you're not familiar, if this is your first time here, we start the year every year uh, with 21 days of uh, taking some things out of our life in the physical to make room for God to do some things in the spiritual. So we uh, collectively kind of give up different things and use that time to focus on God. Uh, so we're actually, this is week two, so we only, we only got one week left and I'm, I'm praying uh, to really lean into God this week. Uh, it's always an up and down thing when you're giving something up. It's a battle. Uh, so I wanted to invite you in. If, if maybe you didn't participate yet this year, I want to say, hey, you can take this week and, and choose to give something up. And then uh, every time you want that thing, pray. And depending on what you give up, you could pray a whole lot this week uh, <laughs> based off of that desire. So uh, it's a good time, and I, I want to really lean in collectively into that. All right, uh, let's get going here. So you know how astrophysicists have really complicated math? I know you're so excited about that being the opening line to my sermon today. It has the word astrophysicists in it. So, but you're, you're familiar with those crazy complicated equations that they have that have like letters and all the parentheses and stuff. And some of them don't even have numbers in them. And I don't even know how it qualifies as math if it doesn't have numbers in it. Somehow they, they have just letters. And it's crazy. And the things they're able to do with these equations, they're able to actually predict like where a planet will be, how fast it's going, how big it is, how much mass it has. Like they can do some crazy stuff with math that is well above uh, those of us who are just mere mortals when it comes to that kind of a thing. Well, before 1542, their equations didn't work very well. Uh, and it was really bothersome to them. Uh, they could not accurately predict where planets would be with their equations. And one of the things that just, just baffled them, they could not figure out, is why sometimes planets seem further away and other times they seem closer and they could not come up with an answer for it. They were, they were just completely dumbfounded by this and they would, uh, they would adjust their equations based off their observations, trying to dial this thing in and they could just never quite get it right. And it really, really was maddening to which I would say, well, maybe you guys aren't as good at math as you think you are. Maybe these letters, maybe you're just making it up. I don't know. Um, but they, they, were, they were confident. They wanted to know what was going on. It wasn't until 1542 when Nicholas Copernicus published a treatise that fixed everything. And in this little treatise, he proposed something radical. Copernicus proposed that, hey, guys, maybe the sun is at the center of the solar system. Uh, because up until 1542, it was widely accepted that the earth was the center of the solar system. And they were doing all their math based off of that assumption, the assumption that the earth is at the center. So when Copernicus comes along, he says, hey, maybe it's not. Maybe the sun is at the center. Maybe we should change our assumption." So what happened was it turned out that their math actually wasn't bad. It was the assumption that they brought to the math. Think about that. The math wasn't bad. It was the assumption that they brought to the math that changed the way they did the math and skewed their outcomes. So they like, they didn't need a math class. They needed a paradigm shift. They needed to switch the assumption that they brought in and it would change everything. So you take the earth out, put the sun at the center, and click, everything works. 
all those crazy, complicated math equations now are dialed into to absolutely astounding precision. That concept fascinates me. That it wasn't a problem with their math, it was a problem with the assumptions that they brought to the math, which then changed the math and changed the outcome. I wonder if this principle is true in more than just astronomy. That you have assumptions in your life that you bring to the way you make choices and those assumptions then askew the choices and skew the outcomes. What if it's not that you have a problem making choices in your life, what if it's a problem with some of the assumptions that you make before you make the choices? So uh, let's take astrophysicists out of this for a minute. Let me use a different illustration. <laughs> let's say you were standing somewhere and somebody came up from behind you and gave you a big bear hug. Now, if you assume that that person is your friend, you're going to respond a certain way during the hug, and you're going to have a different kind of interaction after the hug. Now, if you're an introvert, you're still going to be annoyed, right? Because you're like, why are you in my 12-foot bubble right now? Get away from me. Um, but, but if they're a friend, you're going to respond a certain way. Now, if you assume, though, that this person bear-hugging you from behind is a stranger, wouldn't you say that your, 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 your actions during the hug might be a little different, and then your interactions after the hug are going to be very different? Now, it's the same thing. It's a different assumption. Now, what if, though, you're, you assumed it was a stranger, but it was actually your friend? Your friend's going to have some bruised ribs, right? Bloody nose, maybe, from kicking back. And, and the interaction afterwards is going to be very awkward. Again, it's, it's not the thing. It was the assumption that you brought to the thing that changed the way you act during it and will definitely change the interactions after it. Your assumptions are so important. I believe there's a specific part of your life where this is most pronounced. The assumptions you bring in are going to change the way you, you act during, and they're going to change the outcomes. Specific part of your life. Uh, so this morning, we're going to have the talk. It's awkward, a little weird, but it's very necessary. So this morning, we're going to talk about money. Some of you thought I was going to say sex. Some of you are excited. Some of you are disappointed. But here we are. So we can talk about money. Because I believe the assumptions that you bring to your financial situation probably literally change some of the math that you do, and then they change the outcomes that you get. And one of the biggest assumptions, the assumption that I want to challenge in you today has to do with one short little word. It's the word mine. The word mine. I want to show you one of the most important verses when it comes to your financial situation. Uh, it's as important as Copernicus's treatise in 1542. This, this verse needs to be built into your assumptions, going into the way you think about your money. And for some of us, it will be a shift. The verse is Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. So the key assumption that you're bringing into the way you think about your finances is whose money is it? That's the huge thing. You answer that before you answer any of the other questions you have about your own money. The first thing you answer, whether you think about it or not, is whose it is. And this verse makes a claim 
that when you, when you have the attitude mine about your, your, your bank account, your stuff, your retirement account, your, your properties that you own, that business that you run, when you have the attitude mine, this verse says you're wrong. That is the wrong assumption. This verse says that everything is God's. Did you see the way it actually kind of repeats? I love when the Bible does this kind of stuff. Everything is, is, is the Lord's. It starts with that and everything in it. So everything, um, the, the earth and everything in it. So that kind of, kind, of, kind of exhaustive there. And then it says the world and all the people too. So like in case you missed the first part where it said the earth and everything on it, uh, it's, it's the world, same thing. And, and the people too, in case you're thinking maybe it's not the people. And by the way, Elon Musk has not made it to Mars yet. So we won't have that conversation if he can make it there. Maybe this verse doesn't apply to him. I don't know, you have to fight, figure that one out. But right now, this just kind of includes everything in human existence. Everything is God's. Everything. Now, there's a part of that that grates on us a little bit, right? Because I, I, I can anticipate if you're sitting there, maybe this is one of the first times you've heard something like this, you're like, ah, okay, like logically that makes sense. If you believe in God, then he is the owner of everything, that's fine. But man, like I worked hard for what I have. You know, that number that I get in my bank statement, I work for that. Or, or that, that house that I have, or the, the business that I run, or the, the properties that I have, or the, the retirement account. Like I worked for that stuff, man. I know you're saying it's God's, but I worked for it. And like, I, I wanna say, I, I get it. But, but God actually talks about this too. Check this out in uh, Deuteronomy 8.18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. So here God's just reminding you, hey, like everything's mine. And even your ability to make wealth, like he gave that to you, that that's actually his too. That, that that really powerful brain that you have between your ears, he gave that to you. Whatever the number is that is your IQ, he gave that to you. And some of you say, go, what about my work ethic? Well, you learned that from your parents. You know what? He gave them to you as well. And he gave it to them. Or the strong hands and back that you have or the skill that you have. All of that, all the talent, all of that stuff is God's. He gave it to you. So again, the assumption you have coming into the way you think about your finances is going to skew everything when you're making those decisions and greatly affect the outcome. So what if your problem with your money is that you've had this assumption that it's your money? <laughs> And that's why maybe money hasn't worked out for you in your life. The math hasn't quite added up because you think it's yours. And that's the same. That's the same as saying, I think the earth is at the center of the solar system. And you've been trying to do math to figure that one out. And it's just not quite adding up, not quite adding up. But it's the assumption that you brought to it. Because by the way, that's why they couldn't figure out why the planets were further away sometimes. Because they're thinking the earth is at the center and the planets are circling around the earth. They should always be the same distance from the earth. They didn't understand that sometimes Mars is on the opposite side of the sun. And they could, they, their, their math just could not work out because they had the wrong thing at the center. The wrong thing at the center. And what if that's true in this area of your life? What if you took yourself out of the center of ownership in your life and you put God in there? How will that change everything? I mean, think about that. Your decisions will be totally different. Say you walk out, 
hypothetically, to your car because it's two degrees outside and it doesn't start. If, if, you, if you have this assumption, <laughs> the moment the car doesn't start, you know what you're going to say? You're going to be like, hey, God, your car's not starting. <laughs> and that's kind of a joke, but kind of not because like, uh, think about what that does for you, like your whole attitude in that situation. Because the alternative is your car's not starting and God didn't do anything for that. And, and you kind of have a little bit, in a, if you're in a bad place, almost an adversarial attitude towards God. God, what's up? My car won't start. But if it's more, hey God, so your car won't start and I need it <laughs> to get to where I need to go. What the good part of that, what that does is that puts you on the same side of the table as God. Hey God, what are we going to do about this? That's, that's the right attitude to have. Hey God, what are we going to do? But when you have this attitude that it's yours, you kind of feel like you got to go it on your own. Or, or when the, the paycheck hits, this shifts everything, right? If I understand Psalm 24, 1, then I don't ask, hey, how am I going to spend my money? You don't ask that. You ask, hey, God, this is you. What do, I, what do I do with this? What do you want me to do with this? The beginning is different because you're bringing a different assumption into the conversation. You start in a different place. Everything shifts. So uh, when we start with the assumption that everything is God, it changes everything. I want to give you five like mindset shifts that take place when you put God at the center. Um, when, you, when you take yourself out and you put God in. Um, before we do that, though, I want to... Uh, <laughs> I want to mention an internet term that I learned a couple years back. And it's important to this conversation specifically. Um, now, I'm going to enunciate really well so that you are not allowed to be offended because I'm going to enunciate. You're going to hear me. You're going to hear me, okay? Listen to all the syllables. Um, it's this term. I don't know if you've heard it. Uh, ask whole. Have you heard the term ask whole? Did you hear the k? Did everybody hear the k? Internet, did you hear the k? Nobody email me later and be like, I can't believe pastor said that. No, I said ask whole. Stop being an ask whole. Ask whole. Now, if you don't know, the internet has coined this term. It's a genius. Um, you probably know somebody like this. An ask hole is a person who is constantly asking for advice and then does the exact opposite. Does anybody have an ask hole in their life? You got some ask holes. Okay. And then the worst part of an ask hole is not only do they not list, they come to you for advice, waste your time by you telling them the advice, and then they don't do it. And then they come back to you and ask for help out of the thing that they got themselves into by not listening to you. Aren't those the worst ask holes in your life? So I made a new one. It's called a Christian ask hole. Christian ask hole. Okay. Um, am I pronouncing it good enough? Christian ask hole. Here's what a Christian asshole is. A person who is constantly asking God for help but not living the way God says to live. Now, take that and specifically apply it to money. Because I feel like, just imagine being up in heaven. You know how like there's analytics for everything? If you're a sports fan, you know, they have analytics for everything. Like, hey, uh, this guy did the most uh, three-pointers on a Tuesday that anybody's ever done. Like they have the most specific kind of analytics. Can you imagine if up in heaven, like one of the angels is like a total nerd and he's like, God, I've mapped all the prayers ever. <laughs> and I want to show you like all the, the uh, categories of people praying. My guess is that that nerd angel would tell you that money has probably got to be in the top five, top three things that people pray about. 
Wouldn't you probably agree that, that the prayers that God gets, a ton of them have to do with money. People pray about this all the time. So we're asking God for help constantly. But my question is, are we handling our money the way God says to handle it? Because that would be kind of ironic, right? You, and again, I think we all just recognize that that asshole person in our life who just constantly wants to ask us stuff and not take our advice at all. I feel like we have to understand that sometimes we do this with God. And this would be the area of our life where we are at one of the biggest risks for this. We ask God for help with our finances and then God says, hey, I got some ways that you should do this. And you go, I'm good. I just need my, your help over here. Well, yeah, but I have these principles that you should, nah. I just want you to solve this problem. And I don't know if that's the way it works. I think God is gracious. I think he is patient with us. But I'm asking you before we go into these shifts, don't be a Christian asshole. I can't wait for the conversations after. Pastor called me an asshole today. You're gonna tell your, your friends who go to other churches and they're gonna be like, what did he say? That's mosaic. All right, so five shifts. Five shifts that take place when you put God at the center of your financial solar system and now everything starts to rotate around him. Everything revolves around him. First one, first principle that the Bible lays out that God has woven into the fabric of things. Uh, we'll call it the little to large principle. The little to large principle. Uh, Luke 16, 10, Jesus says this. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in larger ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. So this is a principle now. It's specifically applied here. It says, hey, the way you handle small things in your life is going to be the way you handle bigger things. That's what it says. Now, we don't like to attach those two things. We like to say that if it's small, I'm going to handle it in a small way. If it's big, I'm going to handle it in a big way. And we want to say that they're detached. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 there's a relation. There's a relation between how you handle small things and how you're going to handle bigger things. And then there's other places, because this is actually a pretty popular principle, that talk about the idea that how you handle small things actually is a gateway to being able to handle bigger things. That if you handle small things well, you will be put in charge of many things, Jesus says. So this little to large principle is huge. Now here's my guess, we have a little bit of a... a a pushback on that internally, because I think, um, for example, maybe you have a job that you don't like, and maybe you've come to the conclusion that it is a stupid job, and it is you know, pointless in the scheme of life, and you're very tempted to not do a very good job at it. You're very tempted to treat it as if it is small. But you would also say that I have this dream of whatever I want to do with my life. And, and, and when I get there, I'm totally going to take it serious. I'm going to do everything with excellence. And I'm going to really, really do a good job. Just not here, though. I don't care about this one, so I'm going to treat it like it's little. I think what Jesus is saying here, hey, be careful about that. The way you treat small things is actually has a little bit of a flavor of the way you're going to treat a big thing. And that if you really want to say that you're going to treat a big thing a certain way, then you should treat the small thing the same way. And I think this also applies to money. Because I think we have this, this mentality that like, if I just had a lot, I would do whatever. Would you though? Would you? Maybe the way you handle a small amount is exactly the same way you're going to handle a large amount. Generosity is one of the things that people talk about all the time. Well, if I had more, I'd give more. Mm, 
statistically speaking, rich people only give about 2% of their income, which is super depressing when you see the zeros that are attached to that. But the way you handle something small is actually the way you're gonna handle something big. And I think one of the most important things for me is how you handle something small in God's economy actually is the doorway to being able to handle more. That if you are faithful with a small thing, he will put you in charge of many things. So don't despise the small thing. Do a good job with the small thing. It is the doorway to the big thing. Little to large, little to large. When God is at the center, little to large. Second thing, second shift. I will call it trepidation to trust because I'm a preacher and I have to have alliteration. So it's trepidation to trust. If you don't know what trepidation means, anxiety, worry, whatever. Trepidation to trust. If we assume God at the center, everything shifts when it comes to our emotional state in our finances. If God really does own everything, it changes our emotional state when we think about money. So let me read uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Now, some of you tuned out uh, after one, two, three, four, five words, because you thought, oh, that's not talking to me. I'm not rich, so this verse is for those people, not me. Now, I get it. I get it. I don't qualify as rich, so this verse must not be talking to me. Um, now, we could argue over whether or not you qualify as rich if we compare you to all 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, I think you might actually qualify if we do a better comparison because you're just comparing it to that person down the street, but maybe if you compare it to everybody, you might consider yourself rich. But I don't even need to argue with you over that because I want to say that this verse applies to you because I think what he's saying here is, hey, if you're rich, it's probably going to be tempting to trust in your money, to trust in that number in your bank account, to trust in that, that, that salary number that you got. Um, but he's saying don't do it because it's unreliable. And if he's telling a rich person not to trust their money, don't you think it's quadruply true of someone who's poor? Hey, don't trust. It's, it's easier for him to say that to you. You should be like, amen, <laughs> right? I can't, I can't trust the money. So he's telling the rich people, but I think it's an argu argument from the greater to the lesser. It means all of us don't trust in your money. Trust in the one who gives money. And again, if, you're sh if you shift your assumption, hey, everything's God's, then why would I trust in everything? Why wouldn't I trust the one who owns everything? Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. He said, riches and abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties, and they end up becoming the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties just about as well as a wolf that is put to tending sheep. Don't trust money. I think the big lesson here is like, I guess I would ask you, where are you finding your security? You know, that sense of security, that sense of well-being, that sense of everything's going to be okay. Are you finding it in your bank account? Are you finding it in that check that you get every two weeks? And if you don't know, because it's easy to answer, no, I, I, I trust in God. It's easy to say that. But like here, let me give you a little test. 
What is your visceral reaction, the, react, the knee-jerk inside of you reaction when something goes wrong that's going to cost you a bunch of money? What, what happens right here? What do, you do, what do you do? What's the very next thing that you do once you find that out? Once you, once you find out that thing broke or once you open up the, the mail and it says, notice, do. What's, what's the first thing that you do? If you answered anything but pray, you, this is something you need to think about. Because the, the, if you're really, if you got this down, you're gonna say, no, I'm trusting in God. I'm not trusting my bank account. My bank account doesn't scare me. God is the one who provides. And that's the direction you should be heading. You're never going to do it perfect. But if you really believe that everything is God's and God is at the center of my financial universe, then you don't get freaked out by something lesser because you're trusting in something greater. So trepidation to trust is the second one. Third shift that happens. Principle, we'll call it the greed to gratitude. Greed to gratitude. Um, I just want to suggest that no one... No one wants to be greedy. Matter of fact, my guess is that nobody would like, nobody would own that, right? Like if I asked you right now, like, hey, who in the room is greedy? I don't think we're going to get too many people like raising their hand going, that's me, that's me, right? You don't, when you're reading like people profile, never does it say mom, coffee lover, greedy, (laughs) right? They don't, they don't put that in the list because either A, we don't want to own it or B, we don't have enough self-aware to be able to recognize it in ourselves. And maybe that's a big part of the problem. Greed is hard to see in the mirror. We can see it in others. We have a really hard time seeing it in ourselves. And maybe it's just because we're using that word. It's almost a dirty word. It's almost, it's almost insulting. It's almost like a cuss word. If somebody called you greedy, you'd be insulted by that. Um, so let's, let's just read Ecclesiastes 5.10. Maybe he defines it a little bit better. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. So here, the guy who's writing Ecclesiastes is saying, hey, it's really silly to think that like your money is gonna eventually, like you're gonna hit a certain number or a certain thing or a certain whatever's gonna happen in your life and you're gonna feel full. He's like, it's never gonna happen. You're never gonna fill up and finally say, you know what? I feel like we just got enough money now. Like, can we just stop with that money stuff? Like, well, I just think we got enough. You're never gonna do that. That's never gonna be a conversation with your spouse. Never are you guys gonna go, I think, I think we should just stop making money. It's kind of silly, like this is dumb. You're not, gonna, you're not gonna come to that place naturally. And he said, hey, it's, and the word satisfied. Never gonna be enough. Never gonna be satisfied. Now, the cool part about is, is like, who wrote this? So the Bible says that this is, this is Solomon. Solomon was uh, the richest man to ever live, the Bible calls him. He had everything. And he's now sitting at the end, uh, the top of the mountain, the end of the line saying, hey, I achieved richest guy on the planet. And I just want you all to know, I save you the trouble of having to, to get here. It's not satisfying. It doesn't do it. Now, some of you are like, I still kind of want to find out. I understand. <laughs> but he's just telling you, hey, the, the internal state is that I'm still not satisfied because money can't do that. So instead, we find our satisfaction in God because greed and envy are bottomless pits. And here's the thing. If you're a little scared of being greedy, as in, it's really hard to tell that you are. So maybe you're like, I don't know if I am or not. Uh, I believe one of the ways you can prevent greed 
is gratitude. So even if you can't say, I don't want to be greedy and it's hard to get your hands on that, you can say, I really want to be a grateful person in my life. I think gratitude kind of inoculates you against greed or, or to, to visualize it a different way. If you fill up on gratitude, you don't have room for greed in your life because you are so grateful for the things that God has given you in your life. It's impossible for you to have a greedy attitude when you're really full of gratitude. So fill up on gratitude. Be really grateful. Practice being grateful for the things that you have and you will be shielded against greed. It's, you replace it. You take greed and you put in gratitude. All right, fourth principle. Now, this is where it starts to get wild. This is where I want to say things kind of almost flip upside down. Uh, this principle, we will call it the give to get. The give to get. And it's crazy. Um, have you heard, you heard a girl math, right? You guys heard a girl math? Where like, you know what? If you return something, you get money. You're like, I just made money. Like, well, you, not okay, no, but yes. Or the one, my, one of my favorites, like I, I use cash that I found on my purse, so I didn't spend any money because I didn't use my card. I'm like, that's awesome. I didn't know it worked that way. Um, so girl math, like it's kind of, this doesn't make sense. Okay, so I want to say there is a such thing, and you guys have heard me say, I know there's also pastor math. You know that we count, all the pregnant ladies get counted twice. And sometimes we count you if you drive by slow in the front. Like, well, we have different kind of math, different kind of math. So this here, this is some God math. So let me, let me show it to you. It's in Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper and those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. If you don't believe Psalm 24, one, as in God, everything is God's, the earth is the Lord and all it contains. If you don't believe that, this makes no sense. This is some upside down stuff right here because he just said, hey, um, if you wanna be wealthy, give, give, give stuff away. You're like, hold up, what? Don't you mean if I wanna be wealthy, I should try to hoard everything I got and then get more? He's like, no, that's actually, that's the way to get poor. And I, hold on. <laughs> if I give stuff away, I'll be wealthy. But if I hold on to stuff, I'll be poor. Yeah. Hmm. That only works if, if, if we're in God's economy that you give to get, that the way towards more is actually by giving away, that the tighter you wrap your hands around what is yours, the quicker it's gonna fly out from between your fingers. But if you hold it loosely and you're a generous person, that's the kind of person who God wants to give to. I always view it as like a conduit through which God, like a pipe that God wants to work through. If you, if you close the pipe up on your end and you say, I don't want to give any, well, then God can't flow anything to you because you've blocked it up. You're only giving away little or you're giving away none. So the flow to you is going to slow down too. But if you say, no, I want to be a generous person. Anything that God gives to me, I'm going to think about how to be able to, to give to others. Then that opens up the conduit and God is able to give more because that's the kind of person that God wants to give to is a generous person. And it's a principle, don't, talk, don't hear me as a meeting, oh, you're a prosperity gospel preacher. No, I just read the Bible, that's what it said. Proverbs eleven twenty four said, give freely and become more wealthy. It says it right there. I didn't say it, Proverbs did. It's a principle. It's not some math problem. You know, I gave away $5, God didn't give me $5 back. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, maybe it doesn't work. That's not the way it works. It's a principle. 
generous will prosper. You refresh others, you yourself will be refreshed. That's the way God decided for it to work. Give to get. All right, and the last thing, last principle here. We'll call it the peripheral to priority. The peripheral to priority. Proverbs 3, 9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Honor the Lord with your wealth. What an interesting verse. There's lots of ways to honor God, but here it says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Put God at the center of your financial solar system. Honor the Lord with your wealth. So if somebody asked you like, hey, how do you honor God? You'd have this big long list of things maybe, or maybe you have a short list. Would, would your wealth be one of them? Do I honor God with my finances? Now, this is the one that's, that's if, you know, this is why I joke about like, we're gonna have the talk today because this is the part that's awkward. Um, I think a lot of people have a really weird attitude about this. When, it, when God says, hey, um, God wants you to give, give money to him. Now, I think one, people have a weird, weird attitude about it because they, they actually use that terminology. Like God wants me to give him money. Well, kinda, but not really because if we believe Psalm 24, one, we're not giving him money, we're giving him back money. It's his money. So we're, we're not giving it to him, we're giving it back to him. So that's a, that's a shift, right? Like, again, if you bring that assumption in, all of a sudden giving doesn't, doesn't feel the same because I'm not giving, I'm not loosing anything. He gave it to me, I'm just giving some of it back to him. It's a little bit different of a mindset. And then two, I think the, the biggest thing that I see ah, people kind of reflect back with this, this subject is people kind of have this feel, and maybe you've felt this way, and I've felt this way before too, this feel like God wants something from you. Like God wants something from you. And when it comes to this subject, that is fascinating to me because can you, like, in order to think that God like wants something from you when it comes to your money, like God says, hey, give, give part of what I give to you back to me. You're like, oh, God wants something from me. Hold up a minute. Um, imagine heaven for a minute and God deciding that he wanted to do it this way. Like, what do you think is motivation for saying, hey, I want my people to give some of their money back to me. What do you think his motivation is? Do you think he is up in heaven? Calling the angels together like, hey, Gabe, come here. Gabriel, Michael, guys, guys, guys. I just checked our heavenly bank account and it's low. We're gonna have to either dig up some of these golden streets, mortgage heaven. Like we gotta figure this out because people aren't giving like we wanted them to. Like, can you imagine actually thinking, like, you know that that's absurd, right? That God is not lacking. He, we already established, everything is his. He's not worried. He doesn't have financial meetings. He's not gonna run out. So if that's the case, why would he want us to give to him? Eliminate the fact that he would need anything. That can't possibly be that he wants something from you. That makes no sense. He doesn't need anything from you. He is not incomplete. He's got it all already. So why would he say, hey, I want them to give part of what I give to them. I want them to give it back to me. Let me give you three reasons. I think he wants to do some things for you, some things in you, and some things through you. For you, in you, through you. First thing, for you. There are no places in the Bible where God makes more overt promises than when it comes to our giving to him. 
If you go to Malachi, just read some of Malachi, man. The way God talks about giving, he's like, hey, bring, bring the gifts to me. And he, he uses this terminology, I will open up the storehouses of heaven. And, I, I will, and he actually says, test me in this. It's one of the only places you're allowed to test God. God actually, it's one of the big things. Don't test the Lord your God. Jesus quoted it. This one area and money, test me. Give to me and see if I don't give back to you. See how strong my arm is. And I think the reason he's so overt in these promises is because he knows that this is gonna be one of the hardest places. If you're on a faith journey right now and, and you're wanting to grow in your faith and grow closer to God, and, and, and as you know, Christian, God starts to, to work on you progressively, right? When you first got saved, you said, I just wanna give everything to Jesus, but you were lying because you didn't, right? You didn't, nobody got into that baptismal tub perfect and uh, no, nobody comes out perfect. You had some stuff that you held on to that God's starting to progressively reveal to you that he, he wants this now and he wants this now. And, and slowly over time, you're surrendering more and more of your life to him. You know, one of the last things that God gets a hold of statistically is our wallet. It's the hardest one to let go of because it's, it's a huge thing to take that step. But he makes these promises to say, hey, I'm gonna actually make this a little bit easier. You give to me and watch me work, watch me work. So he wants to do some things for you through your giving. The second thing is he wants to do some things in you. I cannot think of, an, of a more overt way to grow your faith than to be stubborn about saying, hey, I'm gonna give a portion of my money back to God. Cause you're, you're decent at math and you know like that's a terrifying thing. But I'm telling you, as you watch God provide in those things, you will see his hand in it. Lisa and I, when we first got married, for the first two years when we got married, we lived in my parents' basement. They were gracious enough to let us live there. Hi, mom and dad. Thank you for letting us be basement trolls. Um, and it was awesome. We had nothing. We had each other. We loved it. But one of the things we started right from go, and we've been married 20 years now, is we, we, we took the first portion of what we we made and we gave it back to God. And we, we've been stubborn about that. And I, if it weren't awkward for me to share those stories, I would share how many times God has come through and how much God has blessed us over and over and over again. And how sometimes I don't even look at the math too close because I'm like, I don't know how that worked. You know what? I thank you, God. <laughs> like I'm good with it because he comes through, comes through, comes through. And my faith has grown in that. I have a stupid amount of confidence in God because I've just seen him move so many times, so many times. So if you wanna grow your faith, give it, give back to him. Here's another one, man. You heard, remember Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. There is a string attached from your, from your treasure to your heart that somehow these two things are attached. And if you wanna grow closer to God, well, you can use your logic. If some of your money goes to him, your heart will be drawn to him. There's something about that. There's some kind of magnetic pull there. So if you wanna grow your faith, you wanna be closer to God, this is one of the ways. And then finally, God wants to do some things through you. The way God set up his kingdom to work on this earth is he wants to grow his kingdom through the generosity of his people. That's the way he wanted to do it. I would tell God that's a terrible idea, but he's the way he wanted to do it. Is that, hey, I'm gonna grow my kingdom through the generosity of my people. People's lives are gonna be changed. Hearts are gonna be moved. You're gonna hear stories like we heard in the baptismal today, the gospel spread, people giving up their lives to Jesus. 
his mission on this earth moving forward because of the generosity of his people. And we get to be a part of that. He wants to work through you to build his kingdom. He doesn't want something from you. Get that absurd idea out of your head. That has nothing to do with why he wants that. He wants to work in you, for you, in you, and through you. All right, so this sermon series, the whole idea behind this sermon series, we're calling it you in five years. You're supposed to take uh, a futuristic telescope out and look at your life five years from now. And what I just want to propose to you is look at your financial situation five years from now. What do you see five years from now? Don't say, I see myself winning the Powerball. Shut up. You're not going to. It's not a solution. It's not a financial plan. What if you took this idea, this Psalm 24, one idea of uh, everything is the Lord's, everything. It's not mine. What if you took that and you really took that to heart and said, hey, for the next five years, I wanna live as if I'm not the owner. God is at the center of my financial universe. What if you did that for the next five years? What if you really bought into this idea of little to large, that you're gonna, you're gonna handle small things in a way that honors God, both to prove that you're gonna handle large things and as a doorway to larger things. What if you did that for the next five years? What if you went from worry to trust? I'm not trusting in my bank account anymore. I'm trusting in the God who gave me the bank account. What if you went from greed to gratitude? You're gonna fill yourself up on gratitude for the next five years. What if you, you bought into this whole idea of give to get and you became a generous person? What if you took God out of the peripheral and put him in the priority? What would your financial situation look like? What could it look like? And I don't even, I'm not even saying, hey, it'd be better if you just did things God ways. I mean, I am saying that. But like, I think this would be better. Your whole disposition, your whole life would just be better on the inside if you did this the way God wants you to do it. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Put God at the center of your financial solar system and watch him work. Pray with me. God, this is hard. It's, it's natural for us to just have this attitude, this stuff's ours, Lord, and I, I struggle with it. Lord, it's yours, everything, everything is yours. I pray for the person in here right now who's really struggling with that, Lord. They struggle with the word mine. Pray that you would work on them and show them it's yours. Lord, I, I pray for a new heart, a, a new perspective, a new assumption brought to, the, to this equation, Lord that we would view our finances through your lens. I pray for new levels of faith, new levels of trust, new levels of generosity, new levels of gratitude, Lord. I pray that you would move here. And five years from now, man, we'd be different, Lord, for transformation. Transformation in our trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.